I, I, I thought I'd been very clear on this matter. <laughs> Kirienka's going to lead the team at the Tour de France this year. Hey, podcast listener, you're listening to the Semi Pro Cycling Podcast. The weekly podcast where we discuss all the issues that cyclists talk about. Whether you're out training, commuting, or just riding around, sit down and listen in, because we're about to begin. I got something to say, man. Yo, welcome to episode 42 of the Semi-Pro Cycling Podcast, where we believe that only a semi-pro cyclist rides for love and not money. If you stick around to the end, I'll fill you in on the quote from the top of the show and let you know who's talking team leadership. Hey there, semi-pros. My name is Damien Roos. I'm the founder of semi-pro cycling home of the semi-pro cyclist this week again i'm going to start with two itunes reviews the first one i want to ride my bicycle five stars by nikki wonder i found this podcast when i started riding about four months ago very informative and interesting topics i however will never be a semi-pro cyclist since i started riding at 41 i still find a lot of the topics i can get something out of keep up the good work damien and smash those african strava segments Thanks for writing the review, Nick. I really do appreciate it. And don't worry, the show's not just about being a semi-pro. We are also pro-hipster. The second review, great show, five stars by Pitbull, IPMC. Great show with great new tips and tricks. Never thought about baby wipes to clean the bike. Using it now. Thanks, Brad. Fort Worth, Texas. Thank you very much, Brad. I really can't claim the glory for the baby wipes. It's cyclingtips.com.au. Check it out. It is an awesome website as well. But thank you, really, really thank you for dropping that review in. And if anyone listening wants to do me a solid, a solid would be dropping an iTunes review into their ugly system. Okay, so the news, there has been lots going on this week, lots and lots and lots. I'll start with the Tour of Turkey. A little controversy, the winner, Mustafa Sayer, he's stirring the pot as far as people are saying that he's either going to be the next big thing or he's totally fudging it and he's not doing it the real way. I got to say, I'm on the fence about this. I really don't want to speak out about a rider before anything is said officially or there are any results that come back from doping control. I've got to say, good on him. I know he would have been hitting this race hard. He is Turkish and this was his home tour. This would be his world championships, as he put it. So right now, I've just got to say, well done, well done, well done, Mustafa. Also, a couple of other riders I know, yes, they're Australian. Rory Sutherland came in 10th, so it was the first time we've seen him have a hit out over in Europe, and it's pretty cool that he's come in 10th spot. I'm sure he's just slowly getting a feel for European racing again, and well done for 10th. And the same for Cam Meyer. He came in number six, which, awesome effort for someone just getting back into the swing of things after surgery. I've got to say, I'm really looking forward to Cam Meyer hitting out some races with some big guns and hopefully that comes around sooner rather than later. Also, what about those shocking Bollet sunglasses that they wear? I don't know how they can do it. They have absolutely no class. I'm so sorry you have to wear those guys. And in combination with those Scott helmets, so awful. But anyway, some other big news this week was the verdict that was handed down in Operation Poroto. I'm going to say... Totally, totally disappointed with the outcome. Fuentes received a one-year prison sentence that will most likely be suspended. He's got a fine of around 5700 Australian dollars. He can't practice sports medicine for four years, but he will be able to practice as a GP. 
It's absolutely unbelievable. And probably the most unbelievable part about it is that the judge ruled that the 200 blood bags that were sticking around his office will not be tested. I just cannot believe that this opportunity to go in and clean the sport out even more has been passed up. I'm really disappointed. It just really is an absolute joke. But to the racing, the Giro gets underway in Napoli this week. Who's your pick? I really don't have anyone that I've chosen just yet. I'll give you a favorite next week after I've seen some form. Unfortunately, my pick probably isn't going to come from Cadell. Now, the nuts and bolts this week, I'm talking about cleat placement. It's one of those things that you might not reconsider once you've got everything in place. You have your foot locked in, you are happy with what you're doing, and you don't actually revisit it. But I thought with this episode, it would be interesting to revisit where you actually place your cleats, why you actually place your cleats. So I got on an expert in this field, Steve Hogg, We discuss this and we go into a whole bunch of other things. And if you need a reminder who Steve is, check out episode 30. Steve is a world leader in fitting riders to their bikes. And his advice for cleat placement is spot on in my opinion. So take a listen. Steve, welcome to the show. Pleasure to be here, Damien. Today I predominantly want to talk about determining cleat position, but I know that it doesn't sit in isolation and foot placement and a lot of other factors play an important role in in getting cleat placement right. So let's begin with the ideas behind the way that you determine cleat position in the post that's on your website, which is power to the pedal. You offer three options where each one moves further away from the traditional idea. Options. I've got to correct that inference a little bit. I posit that ball of the foot over the pedal axle as a general, general recommendation is seriously flawed and offer three general approaches that I think are a more valid starting point. Okay, so as, as far as starting points... Say, saying that everyone must follow one of these three, I'm just saying here are three starting points which are philosophically, have better philosophical underpinning. Okay, and each one of those moves the ball of the foot further in front of the pedal axle, is that right? Further in front than the general recommendation of ball of the foot over the pedal axle, which has been around for years and years, yes. What do you consider the ball of the foot then? The joint axis of the first metatarsophalangeal joint. The joint axis of the bulge behind at the base of the big toe. Because I've heard you um, or I've read in regards to why you're offering these as options, as ways to change the positioning of the cleat in finding this sweet spot of a bat. And that was a really clear visualization that, that sort of set it off in my head. Can you run through that kind of way of thinking about getting the power down? Well, the first question I'd ask any, of anyone who pushes the line that the ball of the foot should be over the pedal axle is to ask why. Now, I've never heard anything more than the most general statements supporting it. And by general statements, I mean people say, oh, but it's the best place. And I go, well, why is it the best place? And, oh, it's been proven. Well, explain to me how it was proven. And no one can ever answer these questions. Now, the foot is a, is a lever, in a sense, during the pedalling action. But the thing is, the longer the lever, the more, the, more the, the need to be able to control that lever length. And I use the baseball bat or a cricket bat as an analogy because if lever length was everything, we'd be able to hit a ball effectively with the very tip of the bat. As everyone who's ever swung a cricket bat or baseball bat will tell you, that's not possible. 
that the, the longest effective lever length is approximately four inches or a hundred mil up from the end of the bat, which in cricket, cricketing terms is termed the sweet spot. What they call it in baseball, I don't know. They've probably got a similar term because that is the longest lever length we can effectively control. Now, I don't think anyone's ever going to suggest that we pedal with our toes. So you know, then people come back and say, well, let's pedal with the ball of the foot over the pedal axle. Well, why the ball of the foot? Why not the second metatarsal joint or the third or the fourth or the fifth? And the answer generally given, if you do the research and go back and look at the historical record, is that people have taken an inference from running mechanics because in a normal human foot strike, we hit with the outside of the heel and we roll in and off on the big toe. And people assume that there's some sort of parallel between walking and running mechanics and therefore we should load the big toe. And I don't think that stands up in a cycling load where the foot isn't flexing and we're pushing on a rigid platform called a carbon fibre shoe sole. I have actually, for a long time, on my mountain bike, used this idea where it's further along. But generally, I start with that for stability first and then power. What? The ball of the foot or further forward? Further forward. Further forward. Further forward, yes. So I, what I did on my road bike, I actually went through your first starting point under method one, which, yep. pla- which placed the, the joint at around eight millimetres in front of the axle. And it felt awkward at first. Based your shoe size. Yeah, so my shoe size is 40, 41. Yep. And uh, I have to admit it felt awkward and it felt a little unstable initially because I was coming from that other position. Because you were coming further back again. Yeah, that's right. Well, that doesn't surprise me because it's always harder to move a cleat forward in terms of habituation than it is to move it back, funnily enough. So I don't, I don't, I'm not surprised by that. And for mountain bikes, I'd suggest a slightly more rearward cleat placement than for road bikes, simply because on a mountain bike, the limiting factor in, is those extreme high-torque efforts you need for four or five strokes to get over a lip or... Up, up a steep, uh, a steep little section, you know, with rock, you know, baby head rocks all over it. That's why mountain bike riders generally ride longer cranks too. Those high torque efforts. Now, under a high torque effort, you drop your heel more, meaning the foot is rotating further behind the ball of the foot. So, for mountain bikes, I would encourage you to have a slightly more rearward cleat position than for a road bike. When I was fiddling around with this and moving them back and forth just to find this position, I was thinking about how is it going to feel like. Is there just something that will click? Will it just feel right once it's there? Or is it something that has to be um, worked into over a couple of weeks? Uh, There's always a habituation period. We need time to adapt to any change. And I've got to tell you, any cleat position will feel right if that's the only one you use. Yeah, I totally feel that. Because it wasn't until I was under hard load a couple of rides after changing my road cleats when I started to shrink up under hard load that it started to feel right. That doesn't surprise me at all. I mean, there's always a habituation period. One of the issues I have with fitting people is I caution everyone very strongly, both verbally and in writing, to ride at low intensity for three weeks post-fit because often the changes are substantial and no one is going to come here 10 times so I can perform tiny incremental changes. So I've got to do it all in one hit. And sometimes they're quite large and people need to adapt and we don't adapt at high intensity. We only adapt at low intensity. At high intensity, we always attempt to fall back into patterns of motion we're used to. And if a position, whether it be cleat position or other parameters of position have been changed substantially, well, what we're used to won't work because we're not in that position anymore. So the idea is to get the pathways 
functioning under a light load and then Correct. ramp it up. Correct. Neural function precedes everything else with a decent bike, uh, with a decent bike position. And then that's training the body to then, under hard load, fall back to that as your it's default. Training the nervous system in how to respond to a different, a different array of stimuli, and a different cleat position is a stimulus to adapt. So we need time to adapt. Just moving back to the cleat placement stuff, the third option that you present as a starting point is mid sole placement or mid foot placement, which may or in the middle of the sole, depends on the proportions of the foot. Okay, so mid-foot placement. Why would someone want to consider this? Um, for some people, it's, it's in, a, in an effort to avoid injury. People with Morton's foot and, you know, Morton's neuromas, people who experience hot foot and other issues, people with Achilles tendon issues. Now, all of those, those issues I just mentioned all have other solutions, but one quick way to relieve stress is to go to a mid-foot cleat position. It's also quite a benefit for anyone involved in endurance and uh, ultra-endurance efforts. I mean, I, I, t I make the point that the last uh, four or five race across Americas have been won by people using midfoot cleat position. Midfoot cleat position relieves load on the calf. Now, some people perform better. No one seems to perform worse. But what, what benefit accrues is generally most obvious the longer and harder the ride. When you're positioning it this way, does it effectively knock out the calf altogether? No, it doesn't knock out the calf altogether, but it relieves a lot of load on the calf. So to, to explain how the calf, the calf uh, works while we cycle, the calf has a dual role. Firstly, the further forward the cleat position, the longer the effective length of the foot. Now, if you were designing a mechanical contrivance to pedal a bike, you wouldn't put a foot and ankle in there. That's just the way humans are designed. So the longer that le effective lever length of the foot, the harder the calf, the lower limb has to work in an effort to stabilise and control the foot and ankle. Now that's fine, but load on the calf can't be localised to one part of the calf, and there is a benefit as well. So because the calf is under tension, the gastrox tendon, which crosses the knee joint at the back and attaches to the femur, is also loaded and pulls on the femur. At the same time, the hamstrings which under a cycling load help extend the hip, the hamstring tendons also cross the knee and attach to the upper tibia. Well, the net effect of the calf contracting in an effort to stabilise foot and ankle and the hamstrings contracting to help the gluteals extend the hip provides another extensor mechanism. So the combined effect is to help the, the quads extend or straighten the knee. Now, that's all good. And the problem is, though, that the calf is the smallest muscle group involved in the pedalling process. It's the furthest from the torso and the most affected by vascular compression. That means in really long, hard efforts, the calf is the first one to give up the ghost. Now, most cyclists know the feeling of riding well into the fatigue zone and having their quads more or less give up. Well, my feeling is it's not the quads that are giving up, it's the calves that have given up and the quads are now bearing that load because they've lost that subsidiary extensor mechanism to some degree. So if you're into, if you're into long efforts, ultra-endurance efforts, yeah, I think midfoot cleat position is of benefit. It's also of quite a bit of benefit to triathletes in terms of running off the bike because you have to use your calves quite heavily when you run. So if you can save them on the bike, you won't go any worse on the bike. You may not perform better, but you certainly won't perform worse, but you will run faster. So how about for racing cyclists or serious recreational cyclists? Where would be their best starting point? 
Well, it depends on the person and what their goals are and what their aims are. I mean, I don't have a, a, a broad approach. I try and tailor it to each individual. If someone is a recreational rider, uh, you know, even if they're serious, but they don't race and, and, and hard accelerations are not, uh, are not necessary, you know, their, their ability to optimise uh, hard accelerations are not necessary, I'd tell them to go method two because that will spread the load over the forefoot. It won't involve them in shoe modification. It won't give them the large increase in toe overlap you'll get gain with midfoot and they'll have a solid stable foot on the pedal. If a rider is racing, road or particularly criteriums, I would tell them method one because that's tried and true with thousands of clients over many, many years on a money back if not happy basis. It provides a stable enough foot to sustain efforts for any reasonable length of time. It also doesn't knock the edge off your acceleration. There's one thing you need to understand in a general sense is the further back the cleat goes, the less of the rider's ability to accelerate really fiercely in that first half dozen strokes. And for midfoot, for the people that, that either have issues, uh, Ironman or long course triathletes, or prioritise ultra endurance type riding. Okay. So then the people generally that will be listening to the show are going to be wanting that acceleration. Well, I would say method one as, as, a, as a, a far better starting point than ball of the foot over the pedal axle. Because ball of the foot over the pedal axle works for a lot of people because those people are adaptable, but it doesn't work for a lot of people in the sense that increases the risk of injury. So where does replay or fixed pedals come into this? Well, in what sense? Well... In real the cleat position. Yeah. I mean, that's a separate that's a separate issue altogether. So, could we talk about that as a separate issue uh, then? What I'm saying, sorry, sorry to interrupt. If what I understand you're asking, what you're implying is that if someone was choosing uh, cleats that had rotational movement as against cleats that would have no rotational movement, would I change cleat position accordingly? And the answer is no, not four and a half, not at all. But as far as choosing having that rotational movement and free play. I'm a big fan of rotational movement because if the foot is properly corrected on the pedal, then the foot will not slop around without control. When that happens, because the most common reason I hear for using fixed cleats is, oh, my foot slops around on the pedal if I don't. Well, two problems with that. Firstly, with the foot is slopping around, it's a sign that either rider is either functionally poor or they have a poor position or a combination of both. And the second is that... Uh, that, that assumes that they can get a fixed cleat at the right angle. Now, many people can't, and so all they do is shift the load elsewhere, usually to the knee. So basically you're saying that if everything else is in place and set up correctly, then the movement from side to side won't be a factor. Correct. If, if foot correction is ideal, and I seem to be the only guy that's found a way to, to nail that definitively, then the foot doesn't slop around. You can move it if you choose to, but it does not, not slop around. I also think that uh, a measure of free play is cheap insurance. I mean, let's say you're a triathlete or someone who runs a bit recreationally as well as rides a bike. Well, if you're running on a cambered road, you might wake up a little bit tighter in some muscle groups in the, in the lower limbs and, the, and, the, and the, well, the upper and lower limbs and lower back than you went to bed with the night before. That means that potentially the angle of your foot on the pedal when you're riding the next day without having stretched those aches or pains out may alter. Now, free play allows, just a, allows you to pedal with a slightly altered foot angle without anything being trapped or loaded. Yeah, that makes perfect sense, especially the way that your body will change. Correct. Yeah.
No one stays the same. People aren't static. People change from day to day, and they certainly change over time. Well, this is the general argument against any fixed way of putting someone on a bike. Oh, no, no, I don't say. Look, I have on occasion fitted some people with uh, fixed cleats, but very rarely and only when it was the least worst of only bad options. See, not everyone is a, is a good example of a functional human being. Some people, you just have to, you have to solve a problem. Now, occasionally, rarely, but occasionally, fixed cleats can play a part in that, but not very often. So just moving on to the feet now, because the feet play a very big role, and I know that you work heavily with the feet. To quote you directly, you have every watt of power you produce is transferred to the bike via your feet on the pedals. Correct. So that's very clear, but it's not an obvious thought as a cyclist. Feet generally don't come into the equation. There may be some inner soles. It doesn't really come into my mind when I think about where I could get extra power from or at least fix any problems that I have. Get extra power. No one can give you extra power. They can allow you to apply it more efficiently because power can be wasted by extraneous movement. If you're rocking and rolling on the seat or if your knees are moving in and out, or, or similar type stuff, that, that is wasted energy. That is power that is not being directly applied to the pedal. If the rider can be more stable on the seat and have a stable foot plant on the pedal, well, then every, every watt of power they produce will go through to the pedals, not be wasted in the process. You talk about arch support, wedging and shimming. These are probably new words to a lot of people. How can someone start getting active in their own feet on their bike? Read our website. <laughs> no, and I'm, I'm, I say that seriously because, look, without patting myself on the head, I've put more quality info out in the public domain than anyone else that I'm aware of simply because there's just a, an enormous lack of quality information. I mean, if you look at the big corporate bike fitting companies' websites, they don't tell you anything. The reason they don't tell you anything is, one, you might learn something, and two, they don't have a lot to tell. All they're doing is repackaging information that's been in the public domain for 50 years and putting a marketing gloss on it. Now, I got so sick of that uh, sick of that, that I decided when I had some spare time to, to work on a website as an antidote, to just give people information. The other, the other uh, solution it, it was for me to a problem I had was the hundreds and hundreds of emails we would get every month requesting help with people's position, and I'm talking people that I would never meet in other countries and all over the place, and I thought, well, I almost had a full-time job answering emails for free, and I, I, I've got to earn a living, so I thought if I create a website, I can just direct people to that, there's plenty up there, there's almost three quarters of a million words up there, and they can find their own solutions in terms of general principles that I talk about, and I get a lot of feedback of the type that suggests to me that, yeah, that's been effective. It is an excellent resource and I've got a lot from it, an absolute ton of information and anyone that wants to start with any of what we're talking about, definitely check out the website. I just want to round out this conversation talking about, there's a post on there regarding how to avoid bike fit hell. (laughs) A common problem. Yeah, it is a common problem and it stood out to me that it's something that I'm sure a lot of people come across, especially when they start fiddling with their bike because something's not wrong and then they just go down this rabbit hole where nothing seems to get solved and everything is changed by the time they realise that nothing's working. basic problem is people make changes without a methodical approach and often they make serial changes without writing the original change for long enough to have a definitive opinion. I mean, not every change that is positive feels positive immediately. 
not every change that feels positive immediately is positive long term. People have to spend you know several weeks riding with a change before they can really make a judgment, and that really happens. Someone will perceive some sort of vague issue with their pedalling or their position on the bike, so they make a change. Now that feels better, but it creates another smaller problem. So they oh well maybe I'll make a second change to in an attempt to tackle that second problem. By the time they've made 10 changes, they're lost and they hurt. So all it takes is method and patience. And checking out that post. <laughs> well, it's, a, well, it's just a, that post. Look, that post, it's basically a roadmap. It's, it's like, here's a plan. Follow these rules and you're unlikely to end up in a place you don't want to end up. I actually just wanted to bring it up and raise the point. And there's, there is a, a link on that page as well that goes to measuring your bike correctly and recording the process. I think that's very important as well, learning how to measure your bike. And so the, it's repeatable as well if you are moving to different bikes. If you're going to play with your position, and I'd be the last person to, to discourage people from playing with their position, you need to, you need to draw a line in the sand and say, and say, okay, this is my starting point. If I run into trouble, I can always return to these settings and start the process again. So people need to know what their position is and be able to measure it reasonably accurately and reasonably repeatedly. And um, do you have any plans to write a book? (laughs) Yeah, I've had plans for 20 years, but I can never find the time. So the website is kind of a substitute. It is a good substitute, but laying all of it out in a way that would be a clear roadmap, like you say, I think, would would really help a lot of people. The problem is when you're talking to people, to the population as a whole, you can only talk in terms of general principles because almost everything I would say on, uh, that I have said on the website, and what I'm about to say, I mentioned numerous times on the website, no matter what I say, there are always individual exceptions because people are different. So a book would be a general approach and general principles which can't hope to accommodate every single situation you'll find out there. It's just not possible because people are different. So, so much of quality bike fitting comes down to judgment about what to apply, how appropriately to apply it and who to apply it to. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a difficult issue and the good thing or the, the great thing that I get from you is this individual approach because a, a lot of bike fitters in general run through formulas and, and like you're saying, they're, they're basing them on averages or generalised populations. They're process workers. And the sad, the sad situation is the state of teaching. There is no quality bike fit training out there available, freely available to people. Most of the courses out there are three-day courses. They fail nobody. Basically, pay your money, get your certificate than that person that advertised himself as a certified bike fitter. And some are good, and some are terrible, and most are pretty average. So nothing will change unless the specialised of this world, the treks, the giants, the bike fits, the, the other people that train, the serotas and so on, start having a decent failure rate. Now, without naming names, I know a guy who is, uh, how can I put it, highly positioned within one of these corporate entities, he told me that it was up to him he would fail 70 to 80% of all the people he trains, but he's not allowed to fail anyone. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. But there, like you said, there must be some people out there that do have a grasp of it, even if they are working in these systems. Is there something to watch out for if, if they yeah, are absolutely, doing Absolutely. When you're looking at people's marketing and advertising, 
If all you see is multiple certifications, stay away. If what you see is, is marketing saying, I have X amount of experience, I have X amount of happy customers, and that sort of thing, that's fine. But when someone's, someone markets a system or a formula more than they market their own abilities, you're likely walking into a poor experience. Because I don't care what system people subscribe to. I don't care what tooling they use. I don't care how they go about doing their job. What I do care about is the quality of the result they achieve. And they're not going to achieve that by following a step-by-step formula. I have one last question for you, Steve. Sure. sure. What's a great beer that you have enjoyed recently? <laughs> How long have you got? Um, all right. Uh, here's several. Murray's Spartacus, uh, Feral Brewing Raging Phlegm, and Nail Brewing Clout Stout. Even the names are interesting. Well, beer names are a little less, uh, how can I put it, concerned about impressions than wine names. So how can people get hold of you? Oh, well, via this contact, the contact details on our website. Our, our phone number is freely available. Our email address is freely available. I'll uh, put that in the show notes so that people can find it. But I do highly recommend checking out the website before you do ask any questions because probably if you have a question, it's been asked and answered before. Correct. And it's got to the point that if people email me questions that I have no history with, I just don't answer them. And I'll explain why. We get hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of unsolicited emails every week. I just don't have the time. There is a Q&A section on our website. If people want to use it, it costs them $25 a year. But, you know, they can ask as many questions as they like and they will be answered. That's the only way I have of controlling the flow of emails that we get. And, 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 you know, we're a small operation in a country at the bottom end of the world and it's a, it's a mark of how poor the quality of bike fitting advice is out there that a tiny little operation like ours just gets absolutely inundated with queries about how to solve people's problems. Well, then it's time you, uh, you put together your process and sold it. Well, I've trained four people, but training people isn't easy because I'm only interested in training. I, I, I don't have the time nor the interest to train people from scratch. So I'm only interested in training people who are always, all, already very, very competent and who have realised the shortcomings of most of the mainstream approaches. Now, I allot three weeks to each of those people and it takes as much out of me as it does out of them. So I can probably only manage four a year maximum. Now, each of those people, this time it's the toughest thing they've ever done and yes I do have a failure rate and it's a high one so four people have made it through to date I'll have three more people coming this year a German a Spaniard and a guy from Hong Kong and if they make it through well that'll be that'll give a seven but I don't know whether they'll make it through yet wow it sounds like it's really important stuff as far as getting that proper knowledge out there and then um, then that well, information you set that free and then that can really help people if not then uh well, what I teach people is some patented IP that it's taken me many years to work out. And, and basically, they're measures that allow certainty when it comes to foot correction. But it's a lot of this involves judgment and a, and a, and a feel. And I use the word feel in inverted commas. Now, I, ideally, I'd need three months to teach that to people. Three weeks is cramming it. And only the, the smarter ones or the more adaptable ones can actually pick that sort of stuff up and apply it well in, in that time frame. So I'm always on the lookout for those kind of people, but there aren't many around. 
Okay, Steve, thank you very much for all of that information. I really do appreciate you taking the time out to jump on the show and, and have a chat and uh, just keep doing what you're doing. It's, it's great work. Damien, thank you very much. I'm flattered with your interest. Now the tech hacks and products section. I'm reading a book currently, and it is by someone else I have a man crush on as well, Kelly Starlett. He's co-authored a book with Glenn Cordoza. I don't know Glenn Cordoza that well, but Kelly Starlett, he's the guy behind the whole idea. The book is called Becoming a Supple Leopard, The Ultimate Guide to Resolving Pain, Preventing Injury, and Optimizing Athletic Performance. It's awesome. It is like everything that K-Star produces. It is solid, solid information. And I highly recommend if you want to get your mobility under control, you want to self-test to find out where your weaknesses are and then have the exercises that you can work on in a very structured way. For me, it's kind of like Every time I have an issue with mobility and I want to look at an exercise, I just go to Mobility Wad and do a search. And this way, by having the book and having it laid down all in front of me, it just makes the process so much easier. I can hone into the exact area that I want to work on, figure out through his testing system where I need to start and then just move from there. So I highly recommend you check it out. I've got it on my iPad. I bought it through iTunes. I'm not sure if it is in the Kindle store, but I'm sure the hard copy of the book is a really lovely compliment and a nice book to have. Now, that quote from the top of the show, of course, it's Froomey. Mr. Froomey, no roomy for Froomey. He's stirring the pot a little with this personal video that was posted on his YouTube account. I've got to say, his girlfriend may be the one driving all of this craziness. I don't know if you've seen the tweets from this week, but she tweeted out, that the whole thing is an absolute joke. And even from the perspective of Froome, he doesn't even know what's going on. He's calling the line saying that the team has told him that he's the one. I can't say that it's definitely going to be him because if you've got a big gun like Wigo and you're just not going to mess with him and you're going to let him have whatever he wants to have because ultimately he's done it before and he will probably do it again, depending on how he comes out of the Giro. But this ruckus that it's causing, they're totally confused. It's wasting energy. I think everyone is going to be stoked that the Skyborgs have a little bit of human element to them. So we'll see. I really, really don't care. They're going to create fireworks either way when it gets to the tour. And I really would just love if Room just pissed off from Sky and went to another team so he could hit it out toe-to-toe with Wigo. I think that would be a competition worthy of television and cycling in general. But that's it for me this week. Till next week, get on your bike and enjoy the pain cave or the hurt box, whichever one you're into. (laughs) 